Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, while Zora Neale Hurston will always be associated with Eatonville, when she wrote, Somehow this one spot on earth feels like home to me, she was talking about O'Galley, Florida. This week, the O'Galley Public Library unveiled a literary landmark register plaque recognizing Hurston's time there. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and her goal was to find a little place where she could write. We'll discuss a new collection of essays by historian David Colburn and Senator Bob Graham. These essays show us the importance of thoughtful and civil discourse and the value of citizen activism. And we'll talk about the South Shore Community Center in Miami Beach. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you catch a line there. Oh, shaka, laka, 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 laka. <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, hey, you can't you try? In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her soulmate, Tea Cake. Hurston's other novels include Jonah's Gourdvine, the story of an unfaithful man and his tolerant wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book with white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. In 2018, her book Barracoon, written in 1927, was published for the first time. Since 1990, a festival honoring Hurston's literary legacy and impact on culture has been held in Eatonville, Florida. Hurston grew up in Eatonville, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N.Y. Nafiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the quintessential cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern uh, people in this country, contribute to the culture of the United States. and. Because she grew up in Eatonville, an all-black community, 
where there was not artificial lens of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men. In Eatonville, you got what your strengths brought you. Uh, if you were an energetic, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. If you were a lazy, no-count, ne'er-do-well, that's who you were, and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society did to you or against you. And at the same time, as a trained observer, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty, of the people of her heritage group. And not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives and Today, um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world. Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman, on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida, to write her first and most important collection of African-American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and she, her goal was to find a little place where she could, she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, she found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley, um, and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement, and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature, and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and Men. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by University Press of Florida. The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into hoodoo religion and practices and even became a priestess. 
And the book is important, not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today, it is still considered the preeminent collection of African-American folklore. In 1937, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best-known and much-loved work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Flo Turcotte, Lynn Moylan, and N.Y. Nathiri. Their Eyes Were Watching God is just, it's, an, it's history, it's fiction, it's pathos, it's, it's tragedy, all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem. And it, making history come alive is sort of what what I'd like to do and what Zora, that's what excites me so much about Zora is that she, she, di she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during, during her um, stay here. My personal favorite work of Hurston's is by far Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually, I actually read Their Eyes Are Watching God when my, after our first son was born, uh, that that book was a Penguin classic that cost 99 cents. And when I was trying to, uh, while my son was napping, I would, that's how I, that's how I read that book. I, I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the, uh, some of the impact that she that she had. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the 10-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed and the boy recanted his claims, but Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why theory? She was falsely accused of molestation of a a young boy, um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred or, or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. I think that she f uh, fled back to her home state. After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Belle Glade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. 
When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in Ogalley, she moved to an apartment in Coco and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan. Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague who had turned in one of his supervisors for destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957. Sora Neale Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott. She was a ward of the, of, the, of the county, and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, a friend of hers, who was a sheriff's deputy, was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. The 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Outdoor Festival of the Arts and Humanities was held in Eatonville just a few weeks ago. This week, the O'Galley Public Library unveiled a literary landmark register plaque recognizing Hurston's time there. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why theory? Now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston. We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm going to take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie now? I shake like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, it's been said that newspapers are the first draft of history, and that holds true for the editorial pages as well. Historian Stephen Knoll has performed a valuable service for all Floridians as editor of a collection of more than 100 op-ed pieces written by University of Florida professor David R. Colburn and former governor and U.S. Senator Bob Graham. Appearing in a newly published book by University Press of Florida under the title Writing for the Public Good, the essays span a period of 30 years and originally appeared in major Florida newspapers as well as the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Time Magazine. 
Connie, why did Stephen Knoll focus on the op-ed pieces of these two particular men? In his introduction to the book, Knoll recognizes the academic contributions of Colburn, giving special attention to two books, The African-American Heritage of Florida, which he co-edited with Jane Landers, and which won the Florida Historical Society's Rembert W. Patrick Award for the Best Book in Florida History, and his 2007 book, From Yellow Dog Democrats to Red State Republicans, Florida and Its Politics Since 1940, a landmark book on Florida political history. Colbert's books and his work on the Florida Legislature's Commission on Rosewood secured his reputation as a scholar of great insight who also accepted his responsibility as an activist for the public good. Bob Graham, as Noel notes, was born for public service. The son of a Florida state senator and half-brother of the publisher of the Washington Post, he was first elected to the Florida House of Representatives at age 29. Two years later, he won a seat in the Florida Senate. At age 42, he was elected governor of Florida, where he served two terms, before being elected to the U.S. Senate, where he served three terms. After retirement from political office, he continued to champion environmental issues and education, especially the teaching of civics. In both cases, he served in major roles. In 2006, he established the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida. And in 2010, he was named co-chair of the Federal Commission to investigate the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Colburn and Graham brought to their writings a long history of public service and thoughtful consideration on the social, political, and economic issues that roiled the nation in the last decade of the 20th and the first decades of the 21st centuries. Unlike more recent expressions of public discourse that consist of short bursts of invective, poorly conceived, badly written, and supplemented with coarse language and emojis, these essays, while strong in their positions on issues, are thoughtful, civil, and tightly argued. It is apparent to the reader that the essayists ground their arguments in history and facts. One may disagree with their positions, but one must acknowledge the strength and value of their arguments. Connie, as you pointed out, David Colburn was writing as an historian What were some of the issues that he focused on in these op-ed pieces? Colburn's essays situated events within the context of history. His assessment of two governors is a case in point. In 1991, he penned an op-ed in the Orlando Sentinel upon the death of Leroy Collins, hailing the Democrat as a remarkable man and governor who will leave his fellow citizens of Florida forever in his debt. The left-leaning Colburn no doubt saw in Collins a leader whose concerns for the state mirrored his own. He wrote, It was Collins who modernized the state of Florida, who reminded Floridians and Southerners of their best instincts when they confronted the racial traditions of the past during the tumultuous 1950s. A man of great integrity who fought for equal justice and exhibited empathy for the downtrodden throughout his career. Fifteen years later, he assessed the governorship of Republican Jeb Bush as he neared the end of his time in office, calling him perhaps the most influential governor in state history. 
his 1999 clarion call for a conservative political revolution led to school reforms, including reduction in class sizes, privatization of government functions, economic growth and diversification, tax reform, and hurricane relief. Although it is clear that Colburn does not agree with many of the Bush initiatives, he concludes that Bush redefined state politics and the Republican Party, steering both sharply to the right while persuading a new generation of Floridians to embrace his conservative political agenda. Bob Graham was obviously a participant in the political process. What did he focus on in his op-ed pieces? Bob Graham's essays are written from the perspective of a man deeply engaged in policymaking. But like Colburn's reflections, Graham's sometimes sharp observations are couched in the language of civil discourse. Moreover, he understands the value of bipartisan approaches to problem resolution. In a 2008 op-ed published in the Washington Post, Graham addressed the problem of political gridlock, Joining with 16 other experienced public officials from both parties, he issued a call for a change to reduce the divisiveness. Viewing the upcoming presidential election as an opportunity for a new start, the group called on the next president to appoint a truly bipartisan cabinet, pressed both parties to lay out specific strategies to reduce polarization, demanded that Congress modernize campaign finance reforms, require that presidential debates focus on a single issue, reform the dysfunctional presidential primary system, and educate citizens to use their powers for effective participation in the political process. Graham's sharpest rhetoric occurs in his calls for citizen activism to protect the state's beautiful and fragile environment. Year after year, he addresses the same issues, Everglades restoration, offshore drilling, protection of the springs, algae blooms, wildfires and wildlife, and managed growth. In 2017, as he thought about his own legacy, it was not the offices he held that constituted his legacy, he wrote, but the land we conserve to protect Florida's environment, economy, and quality of life. These lands which define our state are conserved through a series of programs that spoke directly to the people of Florida and conserved hundreds of thousands of acres. These places and the unique experiences they provide are Florida's legacy, he concluded. Reading these essays, which reflect the lifelong research and activism of David Colburn and Bob Graham, show us the importance of thoughtful and civil discourse engagement across political divisions, and the value of citizen activism. In short, it reminds us that we need public intellectuals to help us uphold the public good. A great collection edited by Stephen Knoll. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Miami Beach is set to lose another historic building. Holly Baker has more about the South Shore Community Center. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. 
The Florida Trust has identified the South Shore Community Center in Miami-Dade County as one of the most endangered historic properties in the state. It's been included on their annual 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about the South Shore Community Center in Miami Beach. The South Shore Community Center in Miami Beach was designed in 1969 by architect Morris Lapidus. Lapidus was a Jewish Ukrainian immigrant that was based out of New York who designed over 1,000 buildings over the course of a 50-year architectural career. He is primarily known for his Miami modern architectural style, and he designed several hotels in the Miami Beach area between the 1950s and the 1960s. Some of those include the uh, Fountain Blue, the Deauville Resort, the Eden Rock, Miami Beach, Biltmore Terrence, and the Algiers. The innovative, extravagant resort-style design of Morris Lapidus became known as Miami Modern Architecture. Designing the South Shore Community Center was an effort by Morris Lapidus to move beyond his reputation as a world-renowned architect of swanky hotels in Miami Beach. In the 1970s, the South Shore Community Center was recognized as a national model for elder care. Local Congressman Claude Pepper advocated for the senior citizens in the South Shore neighborhood of Miami Beach. He helped to bring attention to the community center and its services and programs for seniors. In 1977, the building even served as the site of a congressional hearing on the needs of the elderly, chaired by Senator Edward Kennedy. The South Shore Community Center was designed in response to changing demographics as well as social issues of the era, so it was both part of and the witness of local and national history. Moreover, its association with prominent historical figures such as uh, Representative Claude Pepper and Senator Edward Kennedy and the emerging social movement of the era gives the community center a real significance in terms of just overall importance on the local level, national level, and the regional level. This historical significance is also matched by its architectural merit, and it really serves as an extraordinary example of the evolution of his work in Lapidus, who really did not want to be known and referred to as the architect of the Fountain Blue, one of Moses most popular works. Even though Morris Lapidus made an enormous mark on the architectural landscape of Miami Beach, several of the buildings he designed are in danger. Advocates in the community have insisted that the South Shore Community Center building be preserved, but plans are moving forward to demolish it in the near future. Ennis Davis. Over the last few years, the community center property has been subject to a potential plan to demolish the property in order to construct a new fire station for the city of Miami Beach. As such, the property was included in the 11 to save list to help bring increased awareness to local officials that there is a public contingency that would like to see the building preserved and another location selected for the new fire station. However, the building has since been deemed as a non-contributing structure to the city's historic properties database by the Miami Beach Historic Preservation Board. Thus, at the Preservation Board's March 2022 meeting, the board did approve the design of a new fire station and the demolition of the South Shore Community Center. So as requested by the Preservation Board, 
The approved design of the new fire station is supposed to incorporate design elements from the existing South Shore Community Center, including the retention of several planters along the building's facade and the relocation and reuse of portions of the building's um, entry canopies, and then the use of split-face concrete block as an exposed staircase to kind of pay homage to the, the property. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and their 11 to save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida, It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.